Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Willie, Harry, Stee, Harry, Dick, John, Harry, three, one, two, three, Ned's Richard, two, Henry's four, five, six, then who? Edward, four, five, Dick the Bad, Harry's Twain, and Ned the Lad, Mary, Bessie, James the Vane, Charlie, Charlie, James again, William and Mary, Anna, Gloria, four Georges. Yes, the Georges come as a lump. And before getting to them on this podcast, I found it very hard to distinguish them. I think like many people, I wasn't quite sure what all the different Georges did and the best way of remembering them. And indeed, we're on to George II now. I remember when I was doing King John and his son, Henry III, I kind of slightly characterised Henry's reign as a sort of poor sequel to John. He made pretty much the same mistakes as his father, but he wasn't quite as memorable And we very much have a sort of repeat of that idea here. We've got George, George I, and then we have the sequel, George II. And in so many aspects of his reign, he was just repeating what his father had done. He had a terrible relationship with his own father. He had a terrible relationship with his eldest son. He had a wife who didn't last the course, although George II does seem to have been more fond of his than his father was of his. And he also had several mistresses, one of whom he lived with as pretty much husband and wife. And it doesn't seem to have been a particularly sort of (laughs) raunchy sexual kind of relationship. It was someone to sit with in the evenings and play cards. And George I and George II, they both had squabbles with Parliament, which was squabbling with itself, the Whigs against the Tories, with this guy Robert Walpole as the Prime Minister and sitting there for 20 years. He straddled both reigns. I think, you know, George II, I think George I as well, 
they would be comedy films. That seems to be the best way to view them. And if this was an old school English comedy film, George II, George I as well, I think probably Robbie Coltrane would play Robert Walpole. He was a very big figure in all ways. And both kings were involved in these European wars. And yeah, they were both German, German speaking primarily. George II did actually speak much better English than his father, which pleased people when he first turned up in England, which we'll come on to in a bit. So yes, George I and George II, and maybe that's the best way to remember them as two films in a franchise. George III was a bit different and he had a very interesting life. So make sure you come back for the next episode. George III is the one in the madness of King George. Uh, so it's easy to remember him. He's the one that went mad. Although when the film was released in America, they famously changed the title. It was originally based on an Alan Bennett play, The Madness of King George III. And in England, that's what the film was called. But in America, it was just called The Madness of King George because they were worried it might be seen as a sequel and people wouldn't go to see it because they'd missed the first two films. So also, as with George I, we have all these confusing wars in Europe. But the other big thing that happened in George II's reign is that the the Jacobites, the supporters of the disenfranchised Stuart family, came roaring back. And we have the Jacobite uprising and its sad, crushing defeat at Culloden. And it's interesting that during George's reign, James, the old pretender, was still around and threatening Hanoverian rule. And James was the son of James II. So we're going way back. And he was the man who really had the strongest claim to the throne. And we've had four different monarchs in place. Five, if you count William and Mary as two instead of one. But essentially four monarchs. While James is still alive. We've had William and Mary, Anne, George I, and now George II. And you look at this and you think, you know, it, it would have been a lot simpler if they'd just given the throne to James Stuart, the old pretender, in the first place. He was the legitimate heir to the throne. He was the oldest son of King James II. But he would have had to give up his Catholic faith. And you do wonder with James, the old pretender, whether towards the end of his life he felt, maybe I should have just given it up, become a Protestant it would have been a much more stable time in England, probably. But yeah, he's still alive when George II is on the throne. Although it is his son, Charles, Bonnie Prince Charlie, who leads this Jacobite revolt in 1745, which we will come on to later. So George II was born in 1683 and he died in 1760, aged 77. And he was king from 1727 till his death in 1760. So that's 33 years. And of those 33 years, he'd spent 12 summers in Hanover. He actually spent more time in Hanover than his father. So he was the son of George I and his wife, Sophia Dorothea of Luneburg Cellar. And if you remember, George and his wife had a bit of a falling out. They both had affairs, but whilst it was okay for the big man in charge to quite openly have mistresses, it was not the done thing for his wife. 
And Sophia Dorothea was very open about her affair, which she had with this Swedish Count Königsmark. And Königsmark was disappeared. No one's quite sure how he was done away with, but he was. And poor Sophia was locked up in a castle in cellar for the rest of her life. At which point, young Prince George and his sister, also confusingly called Sophia Dorothea, were banned from ever seeing their mother again. He was, I think, 11 years old at the time, and I think this must have had a big effect on his life and is possibly one of the driving factors in his terrible relationship with his father. The two of them hated each other. And George's sister, Sophia Dorothea, married the ruler of Prussia, which back then was a large and powerful kingdom in northern and eastern Europe. Later, it was to become pretty much German, but that all changed after the Second World War. Prussia officially no longer exists as an entity and is divided up between Germany, Poland and Russia. But in the 18th century, it was a growing significant power. And Sophia marries the guy in charge there, Frederick, who becomes known as Frederick the Great. And he becomes very important in this huge war that is coming up, the Seven Years' War. And George and Sophia, after their mother was sent away and locked up, never to be seen again, were brought up by their grandparents, Ernst August and Sophia. Another bloody Sophia. And that Sophia is the granddaughter of James I of England. And so it's through her that we have the Hanoverians coming to the English throne as being the next Protestant candidates for the post of monarch. <laughs> and when young Prince George was 17, the act of settlement in England changed his life dramatically because it was at that point that this Hanoverian family were officially marked down as being next in line to the succession after Anne died, so long as she had no surviving children. So it was important for our young Prince George to marry, and a few candidates were considered, one of whom was Caroline, the daughter of Johann Friedrich, the Margrave of Brandenburg-Ansbach. So Prince George's father... King George I, had had a very loveless arranged marriage with the doomed Sophia Dorothea of Sella, uh, and he didn't want that for his son. So he had encouraged young George to kind of actually meet these women and choose one who he was attracted to, who he felt he could have a close emotional relationship to. And apparently George secretly visited the court of Caroline's father in Ansbach under the name of Monsieur de Bouche, so this was, you could say he called himself George Bush. Whether she fell for this um, subterfuge, I don't know. But uh, yeah, he hung around there for a while as Monsieur de Bush. And he was genuinely attracted to Caroline. He told someone that he would not think of marrying anybody else. So on that level, it was a pretty good marriage. Caroline was a very bright woman, very educated, eight months older than George. And she seemed to be the smarter of the two in this marriage. It has to be said, George didn't remain faithful to her. He thought that rulers, and particularly English kings, were expected to have mistresses, and he had at least two. But he did remain pretty devoted to Caroline until her early death. So they married in 1705, and their eldest son, 
Frederick Louis was born in January 1707. In all, they had, I think, eight surviving children. The Hanoverians seemed much better at producing healthy children who were going to grow up to be adults than the Tudors and most of the Stuarts. But as I said at the beginning, George grew to hate his son, Frederick, in the same way that George's father, George I, had grown to hate him. And the feelings were mutual all round. A large, dysfunctional family, perfect for a royal soap opera. Now, we saw before how, even though they were next in line to the throne, the Hanoverians were not welcome at the English court. First of all, William and Mary, and then after them, Queen Anne. None of them wanted the Hanoverians hanging around uh, and sort of creating a new rival power base um, in London. And although young Prince George was ennobled, he was not even allowed to take his place in the House of Lords. And now it's funny because his titles sound a bit like what you get in bad Hollywood films or American TV series when they're trying to create a fictional English aristocrat. And it doesn't sound quite right. But apparently George was the Duke and Marquess of Cambridge, the Earl of Milford Haven, Viscount North Allerton and Baron Tewkesbury. Now, if if I'd watched a TV show with those characters in, I thought, oh, bloody hell, can't they come up with something that sounds more likely? But no, those were George's official titles. And despite having so many titles, he was still not allowed to come over and take his place in English Parliament. But he did become something of a hero in both Hanover and England when he fought on the Allied side under the Duke of Marlborough as a cavalry commander at the Battle of Oudenarde in 1708. This is in the War of the Spanish Succession. His horse was killed under him, hit by cannon shot, and his friend, the officer next to him, was killed. And he was splattered with this man's blood and gore. And so his reputation somewhat soared. And when he accompanied his father to England in 1714, he was made Prince of Wales. And it seemed to be that everybody in England much preferred him to his father, which was another reason probably why King George I resented him. He spoke English much better than his father, albeit with a thick German accent. Apparently he was a very good dancer. He was like the kind of uh, John Travolta of the Hanoverian court with everybody standing back to admire his moves. He showed a lot of interest in the ladies-in-waiting at court uh, and he promised them a very gay court. And his PR department started sort of circulating this uh, story that uh, before he left Hanover for England, he had declared that he had no drop of blood that was not English. Actually, he said, I have no drop of blood that is not English. Listen to me. I am a true Englishman. The story went around that he loved England. He was a good dancer and a fun guy. But his father, perhaps jealous of him, perhaps jealous of George's potential to become more powerful than him, kept him at arm's length. He wouldn't even let him get involved in the running of government. And when King George went over to Hanover, he didn't allow his son George to properly be a regent. He was allowed to be a guardian, but that was a fairly meaningless title. Uh, And towards the end, he didn't even allow him to be that. So all young George, Prince of Wales, could do was to sort of Well, he did sort of set up a a, a slightly rival court at Hampton Court where he entertained lavishly and invited people to come and watch him dine 
it was apparently quite a hot ticket. And in 1716, his star rose even higher, first when he helped to put out a fire in London, playing the card that Charles II and James II had played during the Great Fire of London, where they were conspicuously out in the front line with buckets. And then he behaved very bravely and kept a cool head when there was an assassination attempt on him while he was at the theatre. Basically, a man broke into his box and shot one of his attendants dead before he was himself overpowered and shot. And and this made George, well, it made him a bit of a hero. Sorry, I've gone off on a tangent there, but this incident really um, increased George's stature. It seems like surviving an assassination tent is one of the best methods for a monarch to become popular in the eyes of the people. And it seems that the two Georges were slightly patching things up. The king calmed down a bit until on the birth of Prince of Wales' second son, who he called George I wish they wouldn't keep doing this. We've now got three Georges in this bloody story. Uh, but anyway, um, his father, King George, appointed the Duke of Newcastle as his godfather. And it seemed the Prince of Wales hated the Duke of Newcastle. And they had this huge row. And George shouted at him, You are a rascal! You are a rascal, but I will find you! And the Duke, who seemed a bit highly strung, thought that George said, I will fight you. And he believed that he'd been challenged to a duel which nearly happened. But the king forced his son, Prince George, to apologise, which he did begrudgingly, and then kicked him out of St James's Palace, where he'd been living, but forced him to leave his children behind. So now the members of the Prince of Wales' court were forced to choose between king and prince to openly show their allegiance. Would they spurn young George? and stick with the king, or would they openly be seen to support the young prince? And it was the same for the members of parliament. They very much had to pick sides. But young George did have a secret weapon, which was his wife, Caroline. And she was very canny. She understood politics better than her husband. She understood the intricacies of the court better than her husband. And she had made this very strong alliance with Robert Walpole who was considered to be prime minister, the man running government. And so the two of them were this power base. And it looked like Walpole was taking his own support towards the prince and away from the king. And the prince at this time feared that he might be completely disinherited. So all of this confusion and this infighting gave encouragement to the Jacobites, who had never stopped plotting to get back all that they had lost. But in 1727, King George I died and his son took the throne as George II. And famously, this is the first time that Handel's Zadok the Priest is sung at a coronation, this great rousing anthem. But there were problems from the start. First of all, George got hold of his father's will and hid it. It was never seen again. And so there's a big row about this. And George II would say, no, no, I don't I haven't got it. I don't want to happen to it. And it seemed that the part of the will that he didn't like was that his father had left instructions for how the succession of both Britain and Hanover 
would play out because it's quite complicated because as King of England, they're also ruling in Hanover. They've got all these European interests and it's quite difficult to split the focus. So King George, it seemed, had this idea that certain members of the family would take over in Hanover and different members of the family would rule in England. And young George didn't like this idea. He didn't like the idea of power being split like that. But it wouldn't have mattered anyway because the king was not allowed to dictate how the succession worked. That was down to government. Following the act of settlement, it was only government who could say who was going to be next in line if things were going to be changed. So the king didn't actually have that power. But George settled down to a life of fairly dull routine at St. James's Palace. St. James's Palace at this point was the main royal residence. And we saw in the last episode how there had been this liberalisation of the newspapers. So there was a lot of scurrilous fun to be had at the king's expense. And there were these various courtiers who were reporting on this in letters and journals. A guy called Lord Hervey, who seemed to be um, a quite a malicious gossip monger, who had a lot of fun with this. And also Horace Walpole, the son of... Robert Walpole, who is a great source for what went on at the time, although a little bit biased. And George had these two mistresses, Henrietta Howard, Countess of Suffolk, and Mary Scott, the Countess of Deloraine. But that just seems to be that he liked to have a different woman to play cards with on different nights. He didn't seem to be in a particularly randy king, but it seems they had a sort of light comedy relationship in court. Um like a sort of bad sitcom or a carry-on film. Walpole reported at one point that George's mistress, Lady Deloraine, was in disgrace because she'd pulled the chair from under him just as he was trying to sit down, which is a classic schoolboy trick, which can cause terrible damage. So any schoolboys listening, don't do it. He enjoyed music, but he had very little interest in art or literature, and he always complained about Caroline, who read lots of books and had these sort of soirees with intellectuals and men of learning. And George complained that she was more like a schoolmistress than a queen. And George sort of ran his home life like clockwork. He seemed to have been slightly OCD about this. So things were pretty quiet on the domestic front. And in 1728, Prince Frederick, aged 21, came over to England from Hanover and was officially created Prince of Wales. So all this time that George II had been over in England, he had had nothing to do with his son. I think he didn't see him for about 14 years. And the two of them by this point didn't really like each other. Frederick didn't allow his parents to be present at the birth of his first child. This led to a huge falling out. And the prince was kicked out of St. James's uh, just as his father had been. That was another incredibly dysfunctional relationship. In 1736, George went back to Hanover. And whenever he did this, it was a very unpopular move in England. There was always this suspicion that the Georges cared more about Hanover than they did about England. And, and often with their foreign policy, they would say, well, you're just doing this to protect Hanover. This is not in England's interest. But when he left on this occasion, somebody stuck up a satirical poster at the gates of St. James, which read, lost or strayed out of this house, a man who has left a wife and six children on the parish. But as I say, it was George's wife, Caroline, who'd kind of held things together and had kept the relations with Parliament 
good. But unfortunately, in 1737, uh, she died after a long illness. And the king was there at her deathbed, kind of um, hovering about and telling her how much he loved her. And as she was dying, Caroline said to him, you must marry again. And George, who apparently conversed with her in French, protested. He said, no, no, j'aurai des maîtresses. I'm not going to take a wife, trust me. I shall have some mistresses instead. But apparently at the time it was seen as a very uh, moving and devoted thing to say. And George, in a display of devotion, perhaps of genuine love, gave instructions that when his coffin was put into his mausoleum next to Caroline, the sides of their coffins should be removed. And he had them specially made so that his remains could mingle with those of Caroline. George's prime mistress was Henrietta Howitt. But not long after Caroline's death, he imported another mistress from Hanover, Countess Amelie Sophie Marianne von Volmoden Gimborn, uh, who he made Countess of Yarmouth, which sounds a bit more down to earth. It also sounds like another made up title, doesn't it? Well, I guess it was. Just like his father, he kept his favourite mistress by his side to the end of his life, didn't marry her, but lived essentially as husband and wife. And it's around this time that these various wars in Europe erupt. Well, it's the continuing war that erupts over who's in charge where. We've had the war of Spanish succession. There's been a war of Polish succession. There's now a war of Austrian succession. When the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles IV, is supposed to take over the throne, Maria Theresa, there's a bit of dispute and everyone says, I suppose we'd better have a war about this. And it all kicks off. And Hanover is at the heart of all this. And George does make moves to send troops there to look after Hanover. As I say, this causes a lot of argument back home. Um, we also get the War of Jenkins' Ear, which is one of the best named wars in history. It came about originally out in the Americas. The Spanish were the powerful force in South America, which is where all the gold was. And English trading ships tried to get in there and they were always stealing stuff and smuggling stuff. And the Spanish were boarding the English ships. And on one occasion, the Spanish boarded the ship and there was an argument and they cut off the ear of the captain who was called Jenkins. And nothing much happened at the time. But seven years later, when elements of the English Parliament were trying to start a war against Spain, they dragged this guy Jenkins into the Houses of Parliament and said, look, look what they did to this poor man. We must go to war against them for this. I mean, essentially, it's a it's a trade war. It's an economic war allied to a war for who is in charge of these various large countries in Europe. So all these separate wars are actually part of the same war. It's very hard to separate them. And the War of Jenkins' Ear is going on largely in the Caribbean at the same time as the War of the Austrian Succession is going on in Europe. George himself, who had been a, a pretty successful military commander in early life, decides that he's going to go over for one last hurrah and to remind people of his past glories. And he leads the Allied army of the English and the Germans against the French at the Battle of Dettingen. And this is famously the last time that a British king led an army into battle. He was 60 years old. He was exposed to great danger um, and he came out of it looking good. They won the battle, luckily, although it doesn't seem to have been down to any great military genius on George's behalf. 
But this fighting led France and Spain to make a treaty and they join their fleets. And for a while, it looks like there is a serious danger that they will invade England. But over in the east of Europe, this guy, Frederick of Prussia, who's going to go on to be known as Frederick the Great, manages to put together a huge army and he comes roaring in from that side. And he is an extremely good general. George is told not to go gallivanting off leading the army again. And he puts his most popular son, uh, the Duke of Cumberland, Prince William Augustus, the command of the armies in Europe. War doesn't go well for the English. Cumberland is beaten by the French at Fontenoy. And finally, the Jacobites think, OK, England is in a very precarious position. Let's go for it. And the old pretender son, Charles Edward Stuart, Bonnie Prince Charlie, lands in Scotland, where the support for the Jacobite cause is highest, the Stuarts obviously originally being Scottish. And Charlie brings this army down from Scotland. They have a lot of success. They beat the English army at the Battle of Prestonpans and carry on south. They get as far as Derby, at which point they stop. There's so many times we've had this of people trying to invade and, and trying to get to London, because if you get to London and the power base and take over, then you've done it. But so many people give up halfway. And I think mainly what happened with Charles is that he was expecting and hoping for a huge amount of support for suddenly all these Jacobites in England who had had to remain silent, that they would all rise up and join his army. But they didn't. By this time, nobody really wanted the Jacobites back. They were happier to have a German king. And the Jacobites turned round and went back to Scotland. And Prince William, Duke of Cumberland took an English army up and smashed the Jacobites to pieces at the Battle of Culloden. Extremely bloody battle. And in order to put down the Jacobite threat forever, there were a lot of retributions. There was no mercy given. Culloden, famous for what happened to the Scottish Highlanders. It was also the last pitched battle fought on British soil. But the Scots had been incredibly brave and tough soldiers. And it's interesting that after this, the so-called English army, which is essentially the British army, but as far as anyone outside the, outside the country, such as in America, are concerned, it's the English army. There are very few English soldiers in it. They're mainly Irish and Scottish. I'll get on to this when we deal with the American War of Independence. But essentially, American War of Independence was fought by the English on one side, which were the Americans, because they were all English, against the Scots and the Irish on the other side. So in those American films where you've got tough American cowboys on one side against stuck-up English officers on the other, it's complete bollocks. It's probably the other way around. But yes, the Battle of Culloden and its aftermath was the end for the Stuarts. They never again tried to get back onto the throne. At this point, George seemed to think, OK, everything's sorted out. I'm not going to get too involved in Parliament. I don't really care what happens. Somebody said of him that he would allow Parliament to do what they thought fit, that it signified nothing, as his son, for whom he did not care a louse, was to succeed him and would live long enough to ruin us all. But in 1751, at the age of 44, 
the Prince of Wales suddenly died. Um, there's some confusion as to what killed him. Some say he was hit by a cricket ball in the head or the chest or possibly a tennis ball. Others said he had some internal problems. But whatever the case, he dropped dead. But he did have the son who we mentioned earlier, George, 12 years old at the time. So there was another heir to the throne. So our King George II seemed to have been quite happy. Frederick's out of the way. He's got Prince George there. Um, he can bring him up however he wants him. And the little boy will do what he's told. But the wars in Europe expand and develop into essentially the First World War, known as the Seven Years' War. This was fought in Europe, in America, in India, and even out in the Far East. And it is the first sort of major step into the British Empire becoming that huge, all-powerful British Empire that we think of when we talk about the British Empire. So over in the Americas, Spain is in charge in South America and is the dominant force in the Caribbean. So the English are fighting the Spanish there. And in North America, it's split between the English and the French. The French obviously are more powerful in Canada. And this guy... General James Wolfe, who was, you know, a, a kind of hero figure when I was at school in the 60s, now largely forgotten, I think, in the popular consciousness. He's been like so many of these imperialistic, colonialist figures. He's seen in a different light these days. But he did this daring raid on Quebec, which was protected by these great sea cliffs, and he landed his small army at the foot of the cliffs and kind of forced them up the cliffside, clinging to trees and roots and bushes and going up tiny pathways. And he managed to get them to the top. And it seems like he didn't really think that this would succeed. And he was as surprised as anyone else to find himself at the top of these cliffs with an army facing an unprepared garrison led by a, a French guy called Montcalm. And Wolf launches this battle. And they managed to defeat the French. And General Wolfe himself, who at the time became positioned as a sort of romantic hero, he was only 32 or something. He wasn't particularly a dashing figure. He didn't look like a typical heroic soldier. He was quite sort of weedy with a very prominent nose and very weak chin. But he led the British to victory. And at the end, he led this final charge. He stood up proud above the rest of his troops, all dressed in red, very much the general. And he was shot three times by the French. French musket balls hit him, the last shot hitting him in the chest. And he died soon after. And then soon after that, the French general was killed too. And this led to English supremacy in Canada. Now, it seems that Wolfe had something of a death wish, that this was a kind of suicide, that he, he was pretty ill. He was suffering from dysentery and terrible rheumatism. He was in great pain and he was off his tits on opium. And it seemed he probably wanted to die a hero's death and be remembered as this great gallant figure who'd led the English to victory. Because it, he wasn't actually a great general. Most of his successes had been due to luck. He was an experienced soldier. He'd fought at Culloden and at Dettingen under King George. And yes, he did become our great hero of this war. Before the Battle of Quebec, 
the politician William Pitt, who became known as William Pitt the Elder, proposed giving the command in Canada to General Wolfe. But the Duke of Newcastle uh, said, you can't do that. The guy's mad. At which point the king apparently said, mad? I wish he would bite some of my other generals. <laughs> Another guy who became a hero of this war was Robert Clive out in India, a governor out there in Bengal who defeated a local Indian army and became known as Clive of India. Now, I, I want to do a whole separate episode about the East India Company and the birth of the Raj, because it's such a huge and complicated but fascinating story. So I'm going to see who I can track down to do that. But yeah, this is the, the this is the period of the British making a determined effort to kind of take over India. It is during this little campaign that we have the incident that became known as the Black Hole of Calcutta, where an English fort was overrun and estimates vary of how many people, but between 50 and 140 people were crammed into this tiny room with very little air and no food and water. And overnight, about three quarters of them died. And it became this, you know, great English rallying cry. No thought was given to the numbers of local population who were treated badly and killed. But this incident helped the English to think rather poorly of the Indians, which is what was needed in order to suppress them mercilessly. So very much a full world war. And George is enjoying this. He was quite a military man. He liked warfare and he was always telling generals off for not fighting hard enough. Out in the Caribbean, an English admiral out there who was holding one of the British territories didn't engage the Spanish in battle. And George was furious and had him arrested and executed, shot on the deck of his own flagship. This was the event that led Voltaire to make one of his slightly acidic comments about the English, uh, claiming that he thought it was marvellous that the English would um, kill one of their own admirals pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others. And George was furious at his own son, the Duke of Cumberland, up to this point his favourite, when he, out in Hanover, was forced into a corner and had to do a deal with the French that was not at all favourable to the Hanoverian cause. When William, the Duke of Cumberland, returned to England, George II fumed, here is my son who has ruined me and disgraced himself. The war also spreads to Africa, where the English are fighting the French. At this point, the French have more territory in Africa than the English. But the British start attacking and taking over. So things were very much going Britain's way. George died in 1760 on the toilet. So a pretty ignominious end. At least he was in the comfort of his own home. And Horace Walpole, who'd been very critical of him all through his life, actually said, what an enviable death in the greatest period of the glory of this country and of his reign in perfect tranquillity at home, at 77, growing blind and deaf to die without a pang. What can we say about him? I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure he comes across as very likeable. George didn't seem to have any particularly close friends, though he could be friendly, but he seemed very sort of self-obsessed and preoccupied it, it, to such an extent that he never really seemed to understand the problems of other people. 
And George was buried at Westminster Abbey next to Caroline, as I say. And his grandson took the throne as George III, still just a boy. And George III went on to have a long and, it has to be said, fascinating reign. It's under him that Britain loses the Americas, for instance. That's the next episode. After the break, the wonderful Tracy Borman is joining me to talk about George II. So make sure you stay for that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back and welcome back to Tracy Borman, who was last on here talking about Queen Elizabeth I. Now, just to remind you, Tracy is Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces alongside Lucy Worsley, as well as writing a fictional series set during the reign of King James I, the King's Witch Trilogy. She is also the author of several books on Tudor history. And um, particularly germane to this series, she is the author of Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy, from William the Conqueror to Charles III. And that was well, that was published in first in 2021, wasn't it? But originally it only went up to Elizabeth II. So you had to do a quick a quick yeah. update, Tracy. I did. I did. It literally just come out. Um, and then a few months later, it was already out of date. So I had to quickly add a new chapter. But I mean, as the author of Crown and Scepter, you could have been a guest on any episode of this podcast. Uh, so why did you choose to come back and do George II? What is it about him that uh, that fascinates you, Tracy? Oh, I love George II. He's so much fun. And uh, he uh, figured prominently in my first ever published book, which was about his mistress, his long standing, and I have to say long suffering mistress, Henrietta Howard. Right. Um, probably one of the longest serving mistresses in royal history, by the way. Um, and she. You sound like, like that's like an official royal appointment. <laughs> yeah. well, mistress actually, by royal appointment. By royal appointment. She got a salary as mistress. It was really? open out in the open in those days. Yeah. And she got a pension when she retired and all the rest of it. It was it was much more civilized in Georgian times. But um, yeah, it's, he's hard to truly like, but. He's a lot of fun. It's George II, um, and and quite farcical at times. So I really fell in love with the Georgian period. So uh, as soon as you mentioned the possibility of me coming back to talk about him, I yeah, I leapt at it. So, what are the fun parts then? <laughs> well, George himself was an interesting character. He was like a kind of an ill-tempered child for much of the time. He would be constantly 
flying into these rages at the slightest provocation. And usually it was over a point of detail. So he seems obsessed with order and routine. In fact, somebody has suggested he may have had Asperger's or, or something similar because he could not stand it if his mm. routine didn't go to plan every single day. Um, and it was said that he would have his underwear numbered according to the days <laughs> of the week. And so, you know, it, it had to be um, laid out in the correct order or he would throw his wig on the floor and, and kick it around in frustration. And he knew every single point of detail within the palaces, um, where each painting ought to be hung uh, and so forth. And it didn't take much to upset him. Um, and he would also have this exceptional eye for detail when it came to reciting family trees. Uh, he knew <laughs> the family trees of, of the British monarchy going back centuries. And, and that was his conversation. So you wouldn't really have wanted to be sitting next to him for very long because he would just regale people with all of these family trees and also about military regiments. He knew all of those. And it was said by Lord Harvey, who I absolutely love, a great gossip of the Georgian court, that while the king insisted on everybody else's conversation being new and different, <laughs> he kept his own the same every single day. So he was a bit of a bore, but yeah, he, but great fun to research. I mean, I mean did, he, did he carry that attention to detail and interest into the sort of the running of the country. I mean, the sort of perceived wisdom is he, he sort of increasingly left it more and more to, mm. to Parliament. Yes, and he did. And this is when you really see the rise of the, the House of Commons in particular. Mm. And, you know, it, it was nothing new by the time the Hanoverians came to the throne that actually the Crown had essentially lost its political power to Parliament. And that was accelerated during George II's reign. And I think that's kind of to his credit, he was fairly accepting of all of that. Uh, he didn't try to swim against the tide in any way. Um, and it was the rise, really, of the prime minister, um, Robert Walpole, mm. who enjoyed his ascendancy during George's reign, is commonly accepted as being the, the first British prime minister. Um, so I think it is to George's credit that he was pragmatic enough um, to recognise all of that, not to try to halt the progress of that. But he invested his energies elsewhere. Um, he was the last monarch to lead his troops into battle. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he does seem to have been all his life pretty interested in, in warfare and that side of things. Yes, he was. 1743, I think it was, uh, when he took part uh, in the Battle of Dettingen in mm. the Austrian War of Succession. You can imagine how that would form the subject of his conversation for many evenings at court uh, thereafter. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, George seems to have been constantly sort of furious with his commanders and occasionally having them executed for not being violent and aggressive enough. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. He, he was very exacting um, as a commander. He even fell out with his favourite son, didn't he? William, Duke of Cumberland, the Butcher of Culloden, not otherwise known for going soft after he wasn't aggressive enough towards the French in Hanover. So, I mean, not even his own family was spared his wrath. He and his eldest son and heir, Prince Frederick, notoriously did not get on. 
it was once said that the Hanoverians were like pigs because they trampled their young. They seem to have a real problem in particular with their eldest sons and heirs. So George II had not got on with his father, George mm. I, and he replicated this. And, and you know, what was, what was the main reason for that? I mean, I know he, he hardly saw him when he was young, but... No, he didn't. It was kind of like the Georgian equivalent of home alone. He left poor Frederick... <laughs> In Hanover, they kind of moved to England when uh, George the First took the throne, and uh, and George the Second, then Prince of Wales, just left Frederick behind, um, and for quite a long time, um, and then eventually allowed him to come to Britain. But by then, Frederick was so resentful of his parents that it, it was obvious that there were going to be some serious clashes. I think, though, it's it goes back to what my favourite monarch, Elizabeth the First said when princes cannot love their own winding sheet. In other words, the sheet you're wrapped in for burial um, because your successor represents that. They represent your death in a way. Oh. Um, and so there's always a lot of jealousy and resentment um, between a, a monarch and their successor. And and so it was with Prince Frederick. But, of course, poor old Fred wouldn't live to... Um, yeah, and there seems to be some um, dispute on into how exactly he died. Yes, it was either um, most famously, uh, thanks to being hit on the head with a cricket ball and then dying uh, as a result of his injuries, or it might have been a pulmonary embolism. can't believe I actually said that correctly. Which is, which is a much less fun and interesting story. Yes, <laughs> probably correct. Probably more correct. But yes. then it would be his son who would succeed yes as George the third I mean it seems extraordinary you've got such an important person as the heir to the throne dying suddenly like this and it's not accurately recorded anywhere how exactly he did die or, or is it just that we've lost the evidence am I, am I right in thinking that a lot of George the second's personal papers were lost or destroyed yes you're absolutely right. They were destroyed, I think not deliberately. A lot of state papers fell prey to fire and we lost a huge amount, going all the way back to Tudor uh, papers as well. The cotton manuscript collection amongst them means that we rely on the very gossipy accounts of the likes of um, Lord Harvey. Um, and Horace Walpole. Horace Walpole. Is it seemed to have a, had a lot of fun yeah. at the king's expense. He did. He was the son of the uh, Prime Minister, uh, yeah. Robert Walpole, and he was always poking fun at uh, George, as were this this kind of literary set, really, really formed themselves in opposition to George II. And I'm thinking of the likes of Alexander Pope in particular, who mm. penned this wonderful poem, uh, which was entitled Dunce the Second Reigns Like Dunce the First. It's basically, you know, <laughs> just as bad as his father. Um, and yeah, it was the, the age really when um, the monarch and indeed the prime minister became open season really for uh, for poets, for satirists, for cartoonists. Mm. Uh, and yeah, they really had a lot of fun with George II. As we touched on before, increasingly Parliament is becoming more important and what's going mm. on there in, in terms of running the country than what the king's up to. But I find I have very little interest 
<laughs> in that side of things. Am I wrong to not try and keep up with the minutiae of what's going on with all these rivalries within Parliament and they're all having a go at each other and taking over and then resigning and coming back? Should I be paying more attention no, to No, that? no, no. <laughs> I, I think this is not the most politically significant reign in the history right. of the monarchy. And uh, really, it just sees the the onward march of the power of Parliament. You see the great personalities of Robert Walpole and also William Pitt um, start to emerge. But it's not that fascinating, if I'm honest. It's, it's just an ongoing progression. But it's this is not- a lot of personal rivalries, really. It's more Lots. about yeah. what's going well. Plus a change. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it, it does get very vicious. I think we can say that at Westminster yes. during George's reign. But more positively, it's the sort of rise of industry um, mm. an emerging kind of empire um, when Britain as a world power is becoming uh, more of a force to be reckoned with. But the monarchy itself is sliding the other way. And actually, it's becoming quite farcical and uh, something to be laughed at and certainly it's it's losing a lot of its um political power but at least you know as i say to his credit george ii doesn't try to fight that um which mm. would make him even more subject to ridicule i think and then and then the other thing going on which i'm also struggling to keep up with is all these various wars um oh, of different names of you know we've got the spanish succession the austrian succession war yeah. of jenkins ear the Seven Years War. I mean, I've I've sort of characterised it, saying essentially it's it's all the same war. Yes. Um. And and in a way, it's the same war that's been been fought since Charlemagne's time. It's it's these different powers fitted into a small space, just yeah, fighting each other for supremacy. I think you've just encapsulated it so brilliantly. I can't add anything to that. <laughs> Because I found myself tearing my hair out when I was writing Crown and Scepter about, oh, God, what, which one is it now? Who's succession to who, which country? Yeah. And it's, yeah, you're right, the Austrian succession, Seven Years' War. But they all essentially seem to be about the same thing, shifting alliances. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a minefield. OK, I don't feel so bad about not keeping up with all these wars and treaties. But if George II had been here, he would be telling us in great detail about every right. single one. He was su- certainly super interested in that, but it's it's all a bit complicated and unnecessary in my view. Mm. But but I mean, as you say, the, the kind of the Seven Years' War does lead to a sort of British supremacy for the first time. Yes, it, it certainly is an age where Britain is emerging as a, a force to be reckoned with, and and that is coupled with our uh, advances in industry. Um, we're sort of on the cusp of the Industrial Revolution. Where, so, you know, Britain is becoming a world power um, in a big way now. I mean, I, I think I claimed that during uh, uh, the Elizabeth I episode as well with the Armada <laughs> and this sort of catapults us onto the world stage. But but now, really, we, we are becoming um, that world power that was first uh, sort of gathering ground in the Tudor period. And a lot of that was fueled and funded by the slave trade and slave labour. Absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a very dark heart um, of this emerging British dominance um, overseas. Britain is starting to rule the waves and, uh, and, and the monarchy is kind of synonymous with that. But ultimately... Uh, it, it leads to global disaster. And as I say, it hasn't mm. 
darker heart. But um, it is, on the one hand, an age of uh, kind of deriding the monarchy, an age where the, the monarchy has lost so much political power that actually people are just poking fun at it. But at, on the other hand, uh, there is growing pride in Britain. It's during George II's reign that the uh, the national anthem is first right. proposed and starts to be uh, sung at major royal events. And that was really in response to the final vanquishing of the Jacobite threat at Culloden in 1746. So there's this sort of parallel between, on the one hand, laughing at the monarchy, uh, but on the other, taking a bit of pride in it as well, and, and the beginning of, of pomp and pageantry that then endures over the next kind of 300 or so years. Yes, and it was at George's coronation we first heard this rousing triumphalist anthem, Zadok the Priest, sung. Yes, that's right, Handel's right. version. It wasn't actually the first uh, performance of Zadok the Priest. That goes right. back to the Saxon times, but it was Handel's oh, version really? that we now recognise. Yeah, Zadok the Priest is one of the most ancient uh, elements of the coronation ceremony. I was, I thought it just was just Handel. For no, George, I had no idea. But it yeah. actually... And, but you know, as, as you were saying, that's very much this huge triumphalist. Yes. Uh, here comes Contra the king. Contrasting it with, with George II himself, who <laughs> yet again descended into farce when he was wearing a uh, the hat that he wore on the way to the coronation was too big. And it was, a, it was an unseasonably hot October day and the hat kept slipping over his face. And by the time he got to the abbey, he was... He was got the red face. He was sweating profusely. And he was in a foul temper because it was all going horribly wrong. But at least you have, you know, the, the strains of Zadok the priest ringing out to kind of save the day. <laughs> so, so Charles III turning up at Westminster Abbey and having a bit of a grumble before he went in is is nothing oh, new. That's nothing. That's nothing. <laughs> well overshadowed by his Hanoverian ancestor, I would say. I mean, at the time of his of his coronation there. How popular was it? I mean, you know, George I had sort of just about scraped through. <laughs> Great way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. He had. Um, but the, the Hanoverians hadn't been exactly welcomed with open arms, I think, by the people of Britain. They were derided and, and people you know, were feasting on the, this uh, hostility between father and son that had dominated the first Hanoverian reign. Um, and... They were just, you know, expecting more of the same, I think, from George II, who, um, ironically, having set out to prove he was so different to his father, actually became increasingly like George I. Yes, and neither of them seemed to have been very good at making friends, it seems. I mean, George II didn't radiate warmth and conviviality. No, I, I think he found personal relationships quite difficult, uh, above all with um, his mistress, my old favourite, Henrietta mm. Howard, who you tend to think of a royal affair or any affair as being this passionate sort of clandestine business. Mm. But everybody knew that Henrietta Howard was George II's mistress because, as I mentioned, it was an official position. And George only took her as his mistress because he thought that's what British kings did. He didn't <laughs> want a mistress, loved his wife, Queen Caroline, um, but thought, well, I'd better fit in. So he had this sort of official mistress. And in typical George fashion, he would visit Henrietta's apartments at precisely seven o'clock every evening. 
pacing about his room with his watch in his hand if <laughs> the hour had not quite struck. And he would spend exactly three hours with Henrietta. Right. Nobody knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, quite likely they were just playing cards or mm. things quite innocent. But even his affairs were governed by the clock, uh, like everything else in George's life. But George II did have one advantage over his father. He had this, I mean, I guess you could sort of call it a secret weapon in the form of his wife, Caroline, who seemed to really help him in his dealings with the government. So George had married um, Caroline in Germany and, and was married when he came to the throne. And in his way, <laughs> he does seem to have been close to her. But she also seems to have been quite astute politically and she sort of formed this alliance whatever you want to call it with with Robert Walpole didn't she she did Caroline was quite a remarkable woman and very different to her husband who once said he hated poets and painters both um, he wasn't he hated being surrounded by intellectuals but Caroline loved it and had this quite glittering social circle but also was a political force to be reckoned with and and forged quite, as you say, quite rightly, this alliance with Robert Walpole. And um, there was this popular verse uh, that was repeated a lot at the time that um, I'm going to get it wrong, but it was basically something along the lines of you you may strut dapper George, but twill all be in vain because we all know it's Queen Caroline who reigns. So right. she was seen as the real power behind the throne. And in cultivating this relationship, Robert Walpole was said to have the right sow by the ear. In other words, there were these two camps, um, one faction formed behind uh, the king's mistress, Henrietta Howard, and the other behind the king's wife, Caroline. And that faction had it right because Caroline really was the one with the political power. But yeah, very interesting woman. Um, yeah, quite a quite a resilient, forgiving uh, woman and I think she was the one who kind of encouraged her husband to have all these affairs because she she wanted a break from him. Yeah, get like, rid of him for a bit. I just get rid of you for a few hours every evening. <laughs> Between seven and ten. Yes, exactly. Precisely. <laughs> she knew exactly how much time she had when, when her uh, but, but she seemed to have a more subtle understanding of politics and how that side of thing worked. Than, yeah, than she George. did. She did. And and um she she had a very effective, I think, relationship with uh, Robert Walpole, um, and um, sort of helped keep the uh, the royal flame alive in politics in a, in a way. Uh, she didn't try to meddle directly herself and claim back any sort of royal power that had been lost, but her relationship with Robert Walpole enabled the crown to at least have some say, I think, in government. So a really fascinating woman and a, a saving grace, really, of the early Hanoverians. So, so, I mean, so how much of a blow was that to him when, when she died? That was a real blow to Robert Walpole, Caroline's death. And uh, he didn't actually hang on to power for too much longer. Mm. His enemies by then, and particularly William Pitt, were, were gathering grounds. And um, you know, Walpole had more cause even than George II to mourn Caroline's passing. Um, and so it had been a, a brilliant successful partnership for many years um, and he never quite found a replacement our our royal history seems to be full of these powerful interesting women married to idiots <laughs> occasionally pretty rubbish kings 
<laughs> exactly. And I think this is a real classic example. George II and Caroline Vansback. I think I think she deserves a bit more limelight than she's enjoyed in the past. And well, then there's that great moment where he tries to comfort his dying wife, where she yes. says, <laughs> you must take yourself a wife. He says, no, 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 I wouldn't dream of it. Yeah. Um, I'll have mistresses instead. That'd be all right. Yes, <laughs> That's one of my favourite George moments. He is, yeah, uh, he's got no filter, as George II, that is. Yes. Um, Lord Charlemont said about him that he was a man of strict honour. His temper was warm and impetuous, but he was good-natured and sincere, unskilled in the royal talent of dissimulation. <laughs> yeah. He always was what he appeared to be. He might offend, but he never deceived. That's a great quote. I think bang on. Yeah, absolutely. He wasn't a typical courtier, really, at all, uh, in that he was surrounded by those. Uh, but I think he was just in incapable of, of being deceitful or anything other than he was. Um, it does sound a bit but, like those irritating people who say, oh, I am what I am. I say what yeah. I see. Yes, exactly. You know, take Usually me as I am, which basically <laughs> means I'm extremely rude. Yes, <laughs> Yeah, I say what I like and I like what I say and all the rest. Yeah, of it. yeah that was that was George II. But, you know, always an element of fast to, to keep things interesting, I think. But even right to the end, there was that that element of the ridiculous with George II. So the morning of the 25th of October, 1760, uh, the king was at Kensington, one of his favourite palaces, and he rose at precisely six o'clock as he did every morning. And the first thing he did was to call for his cup of hot chocolate, as he <laughs> had every every morning. Uh, and then he went into the water closet, toilet, methodical as ever in his habits. And outside his valet was suddenly surprised by uh, a noise that he described as being louder than the royal wind. <laughs> he, was a common, <laughs> he was um used to hearing, and then a thud. And so he rushed in and and there was George uh, lying on the floor. So he'd, he'd fallen off the toilet and, and bashed his head. And it seems he's had some kind of seizure. And, and he whispered, uh, call Amelia. Um, and even now, you know, there was this farce because they thought that the king meant his daughter, Amelia, but he, he meant his mistress. So they got the wrong woman. Uh, but it was all too late anyway. Poor George. Um, he had died in the toilet. So there you go. It's, it was a it was a very horrible history's end uh, to King George II. Yeah, excellent. Yes, the royal end. Well, thank you so much, Tracy, for being my guest again. And I'm glad you found George to be a figure of fun. I was worried when you said you wanted to come on to talk about him that you were going to have a revisionist view of him and that he was actually a marvellous bloke and a great king. Yeah. <laughs> But as often happens, you found the women in his life more interesting than him. And just to remind listeners, your book about Henrietta, what's it called? It's called A Henrietta Howard, King's Mistress, Queen's Servant, because as well as being George's mistress, she also had a job serving Queen Caroline. So it was a it was a crowded situation, should we say. Um, so when you came to write your book, why did you choose to go for the mistress rather than the queen? Interesting. Uh, well, really, it's because um, I fell in love with Henrietta's portrait. I, I used to work uh, at English Heritage and 
and um, came across Henrietta's Thames side villa, Marble Hill, near Twickenham. I'd highly recommend it. Uh, and there was hanging her portrait. And I just thought she looked so fascinating. And I wanted to find out more about her. And through her, I discovered Caroline. Um, but maybe maybe that's a biography mm. for another day. No, I mean, it's quite interesting because, you know, when I'm, I'm, I'm reading about the kings and it will talk about the mistresses and I think, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll have a, see what they look like. And I always come to it with the assumption that they're going to be some sort of 20-year-old dolly bird. <laughs> but they're not. <laughs> they're not. Uh, and it makes you sort of rethink the whole thing of how this mistress system worked and what it yeah. was oh, for. Oh, gosh. Yeah, especially George the First mistresses who were known as the elephant and the maypole. But Henrietta Howard, interesting woman. And, and I think um, you can see the attraction, but I don't think the attraction was the point for George II. As I say, I think he just thought, well, this is what I have to do. But, uh, but did she out, outlive George? What happened to her in the end? Yeah, she had a happy ending. Uh, so she, oh, couldn't, she couldn't wait to get away from him either. But Caroline, <laughs> uh, his wife, was sort of begging Henrietta to stay. No, please, just uh, get, give me a break every evening, seven till ten. Uh, eventually, though, Henrietta managed to escape court and, and she uh, married and was very happy. And she set up... Um, sort of a rival court at Marble Hill. Alexander Pope once said, "There's a there's a greater court now at Marble Hill than at Kensington." And mm. all of those who didn't really like George II and Caroline very much all flocked to Henrietta at Marble Hill. And she lived to a ripe old age. Yes, yeah, she outlived George II. She lived um, well into her seventies, and mm. and she befriended Horace Walpole. And it's through her kind of evenings spent with Walpole that we have this wonderful book, the reminiscences uh, of of her time at the Georgian court. And they really do open a window into another world. They're they're wonderful for all of that period detail and gossip about the Georgian court. Yeah, well, excellent. I'm, I must uh, track down Horace Walpole's stuff and have a, have a read of some of that. It's it's wonderfully bitchy. It's fantastic. <laughs> so that's it for George II. But just remind us, Tracy, what your own history of the monarchy is called. Yes. Written by a proper historian who actually knows this stuff, <laughs> well, not someone who's just read something on Wikipedia like me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't believe it for a minute. That, yeah, that, thank you, Charlie. That is Crown and Scepter. Thousand years of kings and queens, all the way up to Charles III. Well, brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining me again, Tracy. That was huge fun as ever. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Make sure you come back and listen to the next episode on George III, a very long reign, the longest of our kings, nearly 60 years, and a lot of exciting stuff happens in there. George loses America loses his marbles but manages to hang on to his head unlike the royalty and aristocrats in France in the French Revolution and then he witnesses the rise of Napoleon and his ultimate defeat at the Battle of Waterloo and you know what so much happens I think I might need to split George III into two follow the podcast now to make sure you don't miss a single episode Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2024.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.